Hello, and welcome to Birchford Trust Company's Delivering Direction and Control podcast series. Our podcast series is designed to educate, challenge, and inspire listeners while keeping you updated on developments regarding modern trust law and powerful planning opportunities available, all in an effort to deliver direction and control to clients and their advisors. In this episode, we sit down with guest Marty Jackley, current partner at Gunderson, Palmer, Nelson, and Ashmore, who has also served as South Dakota's Attorney General, United States Attorney for South Dakota, and Chairman of the Nation's Attorneys General. David and Marty's discussion includes background on his work as a prosecutor, Marty's campaign for Governor of South Dakota, as well as his Supreme Court practice with Wayfair and work on the Kasner case. Well, this is David Warren, co-founder of Bridgeford Trust Company, and I am here uh, for another installment, another episode of our uh, Bridgeford Trust Company's podcast series, and we are very excited with today's guest. Uh, we have um, a, a, a person of, with national uh, prominence, uh, given his, his role as a prosecutor both federally uh, and on a state level and now on a local level. Uh, Marty Jackley is here to join us, and uh, Marty, thank you again for agreeing to be here. We're, we're thrilled to have you here. I'm thrilled to be with you, David, and I appreciate the opportunity. Oh, absolutely. Um, if you don't mind, I'd like to uh, sing some of your praises for a moment, which are wildly impressive. Um, for those of you who who don't know, uh, Marty is the uh, most, uh, well, he was the Attorney General uh, for uh, the state of South Dakota for several years um, and actually was appointed in 2006 uh, unanimously by the U.S. Uh, by the U.S. Well, actually, he was appointed by the, as a U.S. attorney in 2006. I apologize, Marty. Um, so many great things to say about you. I'm not even sure where to begin. Um, and, and he was unanimously confirmed by the Senate. Um, and then um, he'd served as the states, that is, the, the, the state, excuse me, <coughs> South Dakota's chief law enforcement officer for several years and named prosecutor of the year in 2008, which is very impressive. And as a former prosecutor myself, Marty, I, I appreciate your, your history here. And then in September of 2009, Marty was appointed uh, Attorney General by Governor, then-Governor Mike Rounds. And in 2010 and 2014, Marty was overwhelmingly elected as South Dakota's Attorney General. And in that capacity, of course, uh, he was in charge of all, uh, all prosecutorial activity at the state level and uh, served as national chairman of the National Association of Attorneys Generals, um, which is extremely prestigious. And he was honored in 2016 to receive the National Kelly Wyman Outstanding Attorney General Award, um, all of which is, is amazingly impressive in my, in my view, especially given my background as a prosecutor. And um, where we got to know Marty recently is because of some, some national news he made as arguing um, the um, case South Dakota versus Wayfair, which we're going to talk a little bit about, um, which was an extremely important case um, impacting taxation um, that was looked at by uh, really lawyers and accountants and planners uh, from, from across the nation. And he was featured in the New York Times um, and in other national publications because of his great work there. And you know, because of that great work and, and really Marty's acumen as a, as a tremendous trial attorney and now as a constitutional uh, Supreme Court attorney, um, we collectively, that is the South Dakota Trust Association, uh, Bridgeford Trust Company, and those of us who participated in the amicus brief that was filed on behalf of the taxpayer in the Kasner case, uh, Marty was retained because of his expertise to consult and help the attorneys 
uh, with the drafting and, and really guide us in South Dakota in terms of how best to position <clears throat> the state to help pr protect, rather, I suppose, the, the taxpayer and, and get the result that we thought was was appropriate. And, and, of course, we think we did get the result that we think was appropriate. So, uh, Marty, I'm sorry for the long introduction, but, again, you've done so many great things in your career uh, and uh, your advocacy on behalf of, of um, South Dakota generally and then more recently, I think, uh, taxation issues around the country that really impact people across the country uh, makes us uh, very humble to have you here. So, Marty, thank you again for being here. Absolutely. You know, when you look at that resume, folks say it's, maybe it looks like I just have a hard time holding down a job. But I've been very lucky in life, and uh, my legal career has uh, allowed well, me to see a lot of things. Let's talk about your legal career now. I mean, I know that, um, um, well, you're still a prosecutor. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I'm in private practice. I really came home. I went to the law firm Gunnarsson Palmer, Nelson, and Ashmore that I grew up with that, that took me on back in 1997. Uh, so I took that leave of absence to go be AG and a and, uh, U.S. attorney. Um, I have a real basic practice of uh, business advice to litigation. Uh, and with that, uh, I, I serve as Jones County State's Attorney. It's a county here in South Dakota, a really rural county, where um, it gave me an opportunity to stay in private practice but yet give back to public service. And, and I do enjoy prosecuting. I enjoy law enforcement. So uh, it's something I look uh, forward to doing. I always tell uh, my, my business partners that at some point I'd love to go back to being a prosecutor as well. I, I really enjoyed it. I was in a, a county here in Pennsylvania for three or four years when I was a young lawyer. And, and I agree with you, Marty. I think once it gets in your blood, it's kind of always in your blood uh, to a certain degree. Well, you know, if we could, I'd love to talk about your experiences at the Attorney General's, or rather the U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, I, uh, we have similar paths, although I didn't reach the, the echelon that you have. I, I did an internship while in law school at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C., and I was always really fascinated by the role of the Attorney General, um, rather, geez, the U.S. Attorney. And so could, talk, tell me a little bit about that background in terms of, um, you know, what, what was that like and juxtapose that relative to, to some of the state work? You know, certainly, and, and again, I've been for, fortunate in life. Uh, Senator John Thune had nominated me, I think at the time I was 34, going into age 35. Um, serving as the U.S. Attorney is really the, the chief federal uh, prosecutor and the, the chief federal litigator for the state. Uh, doing anything from Indian country is a large part of what a South Dakota Attorney General does, or South Dakota U.S. Attorney. And then when you look at some of the Federal Tort Claims Act uh, work that y you do on the civil side, it, it gave me that opportunity to, you know, work with great prosecutors. Uh, I got to handle the, the Annie Mae Akwash case, which was a large case. Uh, it was a, a murder case from the 1970s, very controversial case uh, that we ultimately took to jury trial, not as U.S. Mm -hmm. Attorney, but as Attorney General. And so I, I learned a lot, and it frankly helped me lead the South Dakota AG's office when I got so there. So in that role as U.S. Attorney, did you have to go back and forth to Washington a lot? Explain to me sort of the day-to-day the, the -day aspects of balancing being in a federal role and then being connected to, to South Dakota. I did, and of course I'm a South Dakota kid, so I love to be back in South Dakota, and, and the U.S. Attorney job probably took me to D.C. more often than I liked. Uh, but we, we went there a lot because of, you know, we were, you know, kind of in a situation where we went through several attorney generals at that time on the national level. Uh, we had a strong group of U.S. attorneys. 
Uh, we kind of came post 911. It was a situation where we were doing a lot of national security work uh, and yet trying to keep our caseload back home, which in large part, again, it's Indian country in South Dakota. It's large drug control type, you know, work enforcement and uh, bank robberies and that type of, you know, serious criminal activity that U.S. attorneys address. But we were in Washington quite often, uh, and it's frankly where I became close friends with a lot of my colleague U.S. attorneys just because yeah. we spent so much well, time together. Which has to have been a, a tremendous um, support network over the years for you as a prosecutor. It, it still has been. I mean, I, I, I typically lean on former U.S. attorneys that I served with and former attorney generals. Just last week, I leaned on two of them for some advice on cases. Uh, we obviously, we're a small group that we don't just refer cases to each other. You know, we're always willing to pick up the phone and, you know, answer legal questions and talk through legal theories. And it's a, it's a group of exceptional men and women that I got to serve with. And, and they do it not for the money, but you know, for the work that you get to do for the people. Uh, those positions don't pay as well as the private sector does. And that's why I've always had a special place in my heart for those U.S. attorneys and AGs out there when they call with questions. And I always do my best to kind of talk about the experiences that I went through to hopefully help Eric them out. Eric Holder was the um, U.S. attorney for uh, D.C. at the time. So when, when you were in, in your role, where, where, where was he in his career? Did you interact with Eric? So I served with Eric for a while um, when I was U.S. attorney transitioning into, into mm -hmm. the attorney general position. Uh, Eric had just been named. Uh, and so on a couple of occasions, I had gone to D.C. to you know, meet with uh, General Holder. And certainly, you know, it, as my time as attorney general and as I, I rose through the ranks of be becoming chair of that organization, there were opportunities to uh, meet with General Holder and talk to him about what issues are important uh, in South Dakota and on a national level for states' rights and, and state positions. And really, I think most prosecutors would tell you the importance of that cooperative arrange arrangement between federal, state, and local mm -hmm. prosecutors. I mean, local prosecutors are really the the ones that do the bulk of the important work uh, and and certainly state authorities chip in when they can and so do federal authorities but on many occasions we got to meet uh, and talk with General Holder about what was important to us in our yeah, states. Yeah, I appreciate your perspective on that and because you know when I was a, a law clerk in DC he had a it took a real interest in his in his law clerk so he'd actually taken us to lunch a few times and I found him to be fascinating, very generous, very bright uh, person, and uh, I've loved watching his career. And I, interesting uh, hearing your interaction with him at a different level. I, um, I have a lot of respect for him. Really, really, I think a really good guy. General Holder always made time for us. Obviously, I'm very conservative, so he and I didn't always see eye to eye on the issues, but we did see eye to eye on the need to have that cooperation between the federal, state, and local authorities. And again, I always appreciate him taking the time to talk to other prosecutors right. about those issues. So if you could talk to me a little bit about um, how you were approached to become appointed as the Attorney General in South Dakota and, and you know that decision-making process for you to, to sort of transition out of, out of your role, I'm really interested in that, that, that part of your career. You know, certainly. Um, I was serving at the pleasure of the President, and so I served under Bush, and when there was an election uh, then the new president gets that opportunity to put in place really those U.S. attorneys that move forward the new president's agenda. And so I was in a process of looking either going back to private practice, which I left on good terms, uh, or looking at other public service opportunities. 
At that time, the then Attorney General Larry Long was becoming a judge, and so that position was open. It was going to be a short appointment, and then other AGs would say this, and then you got to earn it on your own through an election process. Uh, and so I was transitioning out when Brendan Johnson, a very good U.S. attorney, uh, was transitioning in. He was Senator Johnson's son. He's a well-known lawyer here in South Dakota. And so we tried to line it up so South Dakota was transitioning in a new U.S. attorney and transitioning out the, uh, the new attorney, attorney general. And so that was a process that took several months because of background checks, uh, and it worked well. Uh, we were able to line it up where we only didn't have a, a confirmed U.S. attorney in South Dakota for, for a couple of days. And so um, that was a decision that we just felt made sense for our family because it was a continuation of public service. It allowed me to stay in South Dakota. We did have to move our family from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, to Pierre, which has been a great place to raise kids. I've got uh, a sophomore in high school and an eighth grader, so they're at that age where uh, it was important to us to get in a good school system and, and keep in a good school system, and we were able to do that with that appointment and uh, served a, a decade as attorney general. And much like the U.S. attorney, really the, the attorney general is the chief prosecutor for the state working with, of course, the state's attorneys, which are so important in South Dakota, and the chiefs and the sheriffs, and, and ultimately the chief civil litigator, which is oftentimes defending the state legislature on a lot of issues. And sometimes those can be some of the trust laws that South Dakota would pass that were really aimed at, you know, being beneficial to um, trusts that other companies or perhaps as part of estate planning that wanted to look at our state to, to maybe administer some of the trusts and, and, and be part of that process. Yeah, no, that's excellent. As you know, that's a, a particular passion to, to Bridgeford and Bridgeford's support of South Dakota trust laws is, is paramount, and, and we'll transition to that in a moment. I, I, just a couple of questions about you know the transition into having to run for office. I mean, what, what was that like for you? I mean, I guess I, I presume that you know through up to this point in your career, you never really had to, to, to manage an election. So was that difficult? Did you enjoy that process? Tell me about that. I enjoyed the process. It, it was new for me, but not new for my family. Back when I was a sophomore in high school, my dad had actually, he's an attorney, was a local prosecutor back home, ran for attorney general. So in 1986, he ran, uh, and then in 2009, he was able to swear his son in as attorney general. So I'd been through that election process mm -hmm. as part of family, but it was a change. As U.S. attorney, you're, you're isolated. Uh, no comment is kind of what you're trained to say on, on many matters, and when you're running for an election, no comment doesn't work. And so you, you have a much stronger transparency when you're running for office. And really when serving as AG, it was a big difference than that federal position that I held. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the ability to be out on the campaign trail and, and listen to people about what's important to them, where you're not just in an office, you're not isolated uh, or spending that time in D.C., but you're really traveling here in South Dakota, 66 counties, listening to the chiefs, the sheriffs, and really everyday citizens about what they want to see their attorney general doing. So was it that process that kind of inspired you to run, run for governor of South Dakota? I would say so. I mean, the, the South Dakota attorney general is term limited. So again, we had to make a, a decision whether to continue public service or to go back to the private sector. Um, I've always enjoyed being out on the campaign. Um, I didn't have a lot of time uh, to campaign. I, I kept a very busy practice as Attorney General. I tried several death penalty cases, uh, tried that Aquash case, handled the Wayfair uh, argument as lead counsel. And so 
I always tried to wear that hat as attorney general and as a lawyer, most importantly, and then allowed the, the campaigning to go secondary. And of course, those that supported me for governor probably suggest that maybe I should have spent more time running for governor and less time doing some of the other, but I wouldn't have it any well, other way. There's only 24 hours in a day, and that's, 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 we can't change that as much as we try, right? No, but I will say this, too. When you're running for attorney general, there's such a focus on law enforcement and public safety. When you're running for governor, it's much broader. And it's, it's, it was during that campaign where I learned a great deal about our state. I learned about the business side of it a lot stronger, education. You know, it's part of that, which I think formed the basis and background for me understanding how important trust law is here in South Dakota and how important the Kastner case really was for the South Dakota opportunities that we present to businesses that, that I know Bridgeford has been a large part of that. I mean, it was important that um, I got that background when really being involved in some of these Supreme Court cases and, and having that background to understand really the true importance of these cases. Oh, no, absolutely. And this is where I think uh, your, your experience in Wayfair is, is, is fascinating. Could you talk to us about that? You know, I, I know as we talked uh, earlier uh, in the uh, in the podcast here that um, in many respects it sounds like you maybe were training legally your whole life for that specific moment which you were extraordinarily successful and got the result that, that you were hoping for um, but but let's go through sort of the the mechanics of that a little bit I mean I, before we talk about Wayfair and why it matters and then and then we'll get into Kasner a little bit but you know for you as attorney general to to lead the the argument that the Supreme Court I mean that that was that was was that the first time you had been before the Supreme Court the first time as lead counsel during other cases, including the health care challenge, you know, I was a part of that, but never lead counsel. And so, and it is different when you're, you're sitting there, you know, you're listening, you might be assisting, but when you're lead counsel, you're giving the argument. I mean, you're addressing the justices in the difficult mm -hmm. questions. It's a different level of preparation than I've ever experienced before. I've never held myself out as an appellate lawyer, although as a young defense attorney, I had several A Circuit arguments, and then as U.S. attorney, uh, so I've been in front of the A Circuit many times, but not not at that level where uh, it's you're dedicated between the moot courts, the briefing, the understanding, the case law, and the issues. Uh, it kind of all it's all encompassing, and it's it's just at that different level, and I, it needs to be. It's it's important. Uh, it was a great experience. I, I enjoyed it. After the fact, I would say while I was going through it and trying to balance death penalty cases, a governor's race, you know, five moot courts just weren't high on my priority list. But after going through it and having, you know, received the questioning that I did from the court, it was a very active court in Wayfair. Uh, it was necessary, and I'm glad that the experts helped me get through that. We had an excellent team, you know, certainly the from the South Dakota retailers to the South Dakota legislature um, to the national retailers. They were extremely helpful. The lawyers that I got to work with were exceptional lawyers. The former solicitor generals that, that moot courted me were rough on me, but a, a roughness that I needed. Uh, it refined my arguments. I'm, I've always been a, a trial lawyer, you know, tailoring the arguments to, to juries. Um, this, is, this appellate work uh, just takes a different mindset. Uh, and it took the right team to get me ready for that. 
No, and again, congratulations on your success there. And I, I think that, you know, when I had first, of course, I was aware of the, the Wafer case, as most of us uh, who were in this space uh, across the country. I And I'd heard your name for years. I was very positively. And, you know, when when the the Kasner case became, um, well, was was accepted for cert, you know, right away everybody in South Dakota said, you know, we, we needed to talk to, to Marty on this. He can give us great insight. And, and I think that in many respects, not only did we want to talk to you because of what, what you were able to do to the Supreme Court and your experiences, but, you know, ways to make sure Wayfair didn't uh, confuse the issues in Kasner. So let's talk about that. You know, certainly. I mean, one of the things that I didn't want to see happen in Kasner was Wayfair being turned against really the state's ability to do certain taxing uh, things. And of course, Wayfair was about the, um, the Commerce Clause more so than the Due Process Clause. I mean, certainly Quill dealt with due process. I appreciate that. But really, when you look at Wayfair, Wayfair was simply, can, tax, can, can a state, when there are certain ties to that state, tax internet sales. Of course, I'm probably not the most popular lawyer around Christmas time when folks are shopping Amazon, they're paying sales tax, but we needed that as a state. We don't have an income tax here in South Dakota, and so we're a, we're a very low-budget state. We provide only essential and important government services, but we were losing out, uh, and really the Main Street businesses were losing out to a lot of the internet sales, and it was not just affecting the mom-and-pop shops on Main Street that, that provides so much to our communities, whether it be the volleyball uniforms or the baseball uniforms, uh, but employment. And we were also losing out as a state where, because we don't have an income tax, we needed certain revenues for education, economic development, uh, and we just felt strongly that we as a state, with those ties, had the legal ability to provide a very reasonable and equal, and I can't stress that enough, equal sales tax. I mean, what mom-and-pop businesses are providing on Main Street is the same tax that the Amazon and other giants uh, are paying on the Internet sales. And really, that same philosophy carries through with Castner. I mean, if you look at almost the state's rights deal, I look at it as South Dakota has said trusts are important to us, and we've put in place certain economic incentives for trustees and trusts to look at us as a state. And that's our state right to do that. And what was happening in, in Kastner was other states coming in and trying to take advantage of that and, and what we felt was unfairly. And so that's why it was important for the South Dakota Trust Association, for Bridgeford, I don't want to speak for you, but you were very much a part of that and I appreciate that, to step in and say, we need to file an amicus curiae brief, we need to be a part of this because it's our state's right to be able to do that and to not be infringed upon uh, when we form a trust here in South Dakota or have a South Dakota trustee and there's a beneficiary in some other state that has never been distributed any money, doesn't have any discretion over that trust, and then all of a sudden to be taxed from out of state. It, it, it would have really upended the whole trust legal scheme and you know we certainly rely upon trusts for ordinary business related transactions to estate planning uh, and that's why that case was so important not just to South Dakota, but to many states, to make sure that that playing field is, is fair and even, that if a state is going to tax trust-related matters, that there's minimum contacts, and that there's really some rational relationship of the taxing authority that's going on. 
No, I think that's perfectly said. And I know, you know, part of the reason why Bridgeford chose to, to come to South Dakota um, to have our trust charter, and we could have gone to really any jurisdiction in the country when we launched in 2012, um, was for the reasons you mentioned. I mean, I, I, I've always been attracted to South Dakota's independence. Um, I know there's a fierce, fiercely independent uh, approach to the way they think. And, and, and frankly, those of us who went to law school, um, you know, understanding basic constitutional principles around uh, due process and uh, and the Commerce Clause, you know, kind of made the decision, uh, a rational decision from the Supreme Court, but the arguments are very interesting, and, and, you know, Marty, you said it perfectly, it really turned into a minimal contacts question, which is sort of the hallmark of, of all constitutional questions relative to states' rights, and so, you know, your experience, um, not only having been able to understand the, the, the dynamic of what the court would be considering, and and I think you gave us some good guidance in terms of um, something this uh, the Chief Justice uh, had had shared with with how to even approach some of these issues. Um, but even even bigger than that, I mean, the, this this the, the case itself threatened to challenge South Dakota's very belief in its own in, independent thought and actions. And if they wanted to abolish the rule against perpetuities, well, then they can. And if they want to not tax trusts, so they can. And 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 why should another trust be able to, or another state rather, be able to come in and somehow over over ride or supersede its its state's rights to make its own decisions uh, gets people's uh, gets people's attention. So I think you, you gave us tremendous guidance in that respect. You know, and I, I all along felt that if, you know, Kastner would have gone the other way, it, it would have really, you know, upended the use of trust as we appreciate it and know it in ordinary business transaction and estate planning. Because you could not have a situation where a trust is formed and there may be beneficiaries in 20 states, and then 20 states try to tax those beneficiaries even before there's been a di distribution of any income, and, and the beneficiary doesn't have any discretion. And so that would have really made trust uh, a function of the past. And, and they're so important when it comes to protecting assets uh, and really strengthening the ability to, to, to raise income with those assets that trustees do all across the nation but here, you know, here in South Dakota, with the the trust being formed in South Dakota and having trustees in South Dakota. Well, and what I'm most excited about, I think, um, is the fact that now there's some some definitive guidance. Um, you know, thanks to your work in Kasner, and and of course we have the Fielding case that was also um, <clears throat> up on cert at the same time, but was denied uh, cert. Uh, but has that that denial has implications, and really, and as Bridgeford has written about and talked about so much, the guidance that can be gleaned from both Kasner uh, and the Fielding case out of Minnesota really provides those of us in the space some some nice um, guide point uh, guide, guide points I get uh, points rather because you know Kasner talks about you know the the fact that the beneficiary in state isn't enough to trigger um, nexus you know not enough minimal contact and Fielding talks about the settler is not enough to to establish uh, nexus or or, or or the minimal contacts and so when you take those two cases together it really gives great guidance and I can tell you Marty you know since June I guess it was when when both of those things happened I mean the amount of attorneys around the country and accountants, you know, they really, now they get it. And now they're saying, listen, this works. 
Um, now, both cases are a little narrow, and I don't mean to suggest that they, they're the panacea for everything state tax related, um, but we now have guidance that we didn't have before. And, you know, we have people like you to thank and, and the folks who argued it before the Supreme Court. And, you know, it's being called one of the most important tax cases in, in decades, as is the Wayfair case. And interestingly enough, you know, thankfully, they didn't use the Wayfair case against us, which is that was the irony when we came to you was we said, hey, Martin, help us juxtapose and distinguish this. And I think you did. And I think had you not, we, we could have had some trouble with the decision. Would you agree with that? You know, certainly I was very pleased to see that Wayfair was cited in the decision but not relied upon in such a way as to allow this type of taxing. And, and, and you, hit, you hit it on the nail. I mean, now with these decisions coming down, I think they've really given guidance to state legislatures as they put forth different state schemes that give certainty on taxation and to some degree for the drafters of these, of these trusts. And, and they look at how much discretion is being placed where. I mean, that's one of the large mm -hmm, factors mm -hmm. um, in deciding whether or not you're going to open up a whole lot of tax issues with beneficiaries. And so it goes back to good guidance for state legislatures and good guidance for those uh, trusts being drafted on where to place the discretion uh, and how to best protect those assets from taxation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, Marty, again, I want to thank you for the guidance that you gave the, the, the association and, and those of us who have, it wasn't just so much a financial vested interest, it was more, um, I think, an intellectual curiosity or maybe intensity is a better word around what we thought the right decision should be, you know, regardless of whether it impacted Bridgeford Trust Company or not, we just, we just felt from a, from an intellectual and legal perspective, um, this was the right decision and, and you, you helped get us there for sure. Um, t t if you could explain to me a little bit about your practice now, I mean, I, I know it's it's become a national practice. You have tremendous experience at, at really all levels of of, of practice. Um, tell our listeners, you know, the, the kind of practice that it, that has evolved uh, since um, since you've gone back into private practice, and, and really the kinds of the kinds of uh, the kind of practice you want to continue to develop. I'm fortunate because of. The background that I have, uh, I'm 49 years old, been practicing law pretty much the majority of my life to get to do the type of work that I want to. So I, I enjoy representing clients uh, on kind of cutting edge issues, giving advice in those gray areas. Um, I do anything from prosecution of a DUI in Jones County to, you know, stock purchase agreement worth millions to reviewing trusts. Uh, we're in ag state, mm -hmm. so oftentimes you see trusts utilized in, in agriculture, and so I enjoy working through some of those complicated issues. Because I got to serve with great U.S. attorneys and AGs, some of the cases that I take sometimes is based upon getting to work with great lawyers. Uh, when, a, when a former U.S. attorney or AG calls me to team up on a case, uh, I, I certainly take a look at doing that just because I enjoy working with those type of good lawyers. You know, and those are cases that are important, but I, I get to do the type of practice that uh, sends me different directions because it keeps my day interesting. I love working with business clients, trying to maximize opportunities, especially here in South Dakota. Uh, I've spent 10 years as Attorney General working with the legislature trying to keep our laws business friendly mm -hmm. so that we have those businesses willing to invest in our communities, invest in our trusts, so those are good jobs and, and further opportunities that, that build off of 
you know, that economic development and other things so important to South Dakota. So I've really, I get to do a lot of fun things. Uh, I, I go back to, I'll take a case if it's people I want to work with and something that's going to keep me interested. No, I love the perspective. I, I think that from, you know, where, where I am as a, I call myself a recovering attorney, I guess, um, you have a very unique skill set. And I think that um, the broadness of your expertise makes you unusual and I think a great resource to not only uh, folks in South Dakota, but really across the country who run into issues in, on the federal level. So um, for those reasons, we really are humbled again to have you with us and, and very much appreciate you taking the time to talk through your experiences and, and your great work with Wayfair and, and on, on the Kasner case. And so, um, again, Marty, we thank you. Um, I look forward to the opportunity to continue developing a friendship and, 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 and some collaborative work together going forward. Uh, is there anything you'd like to add? You know, just to kind of reemphasize, to thank you, David, and Bridgeford and the South Dakota Trust Association. I mean, you saw an issue that was important, not just to South Dakota, but nationally. I mean, it would have had significant adverse impact to business across the nation and estate planning if that decision in, in Kastner wouldn't have gone the way we wanted it to. And so I appreciate you stepping up and, and really helping me financially, along with the South Dakota Trust Association, for being a part of that case that to, to try to give as much help as could be given uh, through the amicus process to the South Dakota or to the, the you know the US Supreme Court um, and so that was an important investment that you made uh, and thank you for that ah, it was our pleasure we, I appreciate you saying that we uh, we are passionate about these issues as you know so thank you thank you for that so once again, I'll thank you, Marty. I look forward to seeing you again tonight. And I will say as, a, as we wrap up, you know, for, if you're in South Dakota, Pierce, South Dakota, please visit Marty's office. He has uh, memorabilia and tremendous pictures from across his career, great sketches of him arguing in front of the Supreme Court, which were fascinating, uh, not to mention a couple of animals hanging in various offices that um, are uh, no longer with us, of course, but uh, he's, he's quite a hunter, it looks like, as well. So uh, please stop by if you can to see Marty. He's always great to give you a tour, and uh, his, his history is absolutely fascinating. So once again, Marty, thank you very much, and we look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you so much, David. I appreciate it, along with all the listeners. Thanks again for listening to Bridgeford Trust Company's Delivering Direction and Control podcast series. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to keep posted on when new episodes are added. For more information, visit us online at bridgefordtrust.com.